(laughs) Would you hear now the words of Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19? This is Saul's conversion. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple called Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus uh, Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Would you join me in the response on the screen? Lord, make your word our rule your spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern for the sake of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's time to get up, Wendell. Those bumpers. Did you know that's what they're called, bumpers? I don't know where that word came from. Bumpers. I feel bumped. I don't know. 
Um, this summer, we're, uh, we're doing press play. We've had um, all kinds of really different kinds of Sunday mornings. We've had one on humor. Uh, last Sunday, I think you had one on hobbies. We've had one on simplicity. And last week, I preached at Melrose and uh, spoke on storytelling. And that's what I'm going to talk about this morning is storytelling. Um, we're going to talk about Paul's story in just a minute. Um, but I had a place in Tennessee that was a remote farm out on a ridge. We lived in the hill country, and uh, we, I just called it the ridge. I told Robbie, I'm going to the ridge. So every day I had a hiking path and had all, uh, I hunted out there, I rode horses out there. I, it was just a place that I had kind of to myself. So uh, one day, it was, it, I remember it was an was, was evening, uh, close to dark, it wasn't turkey season, but uh, the turkeys, that we called that Butterball Ridge because they had turkeys all over it. I mean, you were allowed three long beards. That's Tom turkeys. You were allowed three every season, and I usually punched out the first week. It's just boom, boom, boom. That's just how many turkeys they had. So anyway, uh, this one evening, it wasn't turkey season, but I was out there walking. Cause, but I remember it was cold, a little bit cold. And so I came out to this kind of a... a remote extra remote part of the of the farm and there was a whole flock of turkeys most of them gobblers most of them long beards uh some hens but they all flew except two and there was a, a fence that ran right along the top of that ridge and my walking path uh, kind of weaved in and out close to the fence away from the fence close to the fence as i made it was an out and back thing so i was hiking out and i was going to get to the end of the property turn around come back so i came out of the like the thicket and they all flew except these two right here and they're on either side of a fence and they're just pecking away at each other they're squawking they're trying to wrap their necks up with each other and push and pull but there's a fence in between them and I thought this is fascinating and I'm as close I'm right here That's, and, and wild turkeys don't let you get that close and, and they're fighting they're, they're, they kind of look at me but like oh, we don't care and they went back at it so I stood there until my feet got cold. I, I mean, I literally stood there and I thought, man, I can't, I'm, my feet are getting cold. So I said, guys, I got to move on. So I started moving. And when I did, they ran down the fence about 50 yards and were, they were at it again. And so I walked up on them and uh, they moved down a little bit and they were at it again. And finally, I came to one of those places where the path kind of went away from the fence. So they let me get around them that time. So I walked around them. Went out to the end, and it took a little while to get there. Got out to the end of my walk, turned around like I'm coming back to my truck, and they were still at it. This is a true story, you all. I'm not making this up. They were still at it through the fence, pecking away. And so I literally walked up in the woods, crunch, crunch, crunch. I'm off the path. I crunch, crunch, crunch. I walked right up to them, closer than I did just a minute ago. And I'm going to change my language a little bit because I, I said a word in French that I don't want to say in church but anyway I said to the guy on my side they're both full-grown toms big beard everything got the spurs and everything I said to the guy on my side just like I'm talking to you right now I said if you jump over that fence you could whoop his butt <laughs> he jumped over the fence and he whooped his butt <laughs> I promise I promise he did there was another time I was turkey hunting, or I was actually turkey hunting this time, and I was sitting against that same fence row with my back to the fence row, but I was way back closer to the truck that time. And uh, 
I had permission to hunt all the farms around, but that was the one I was concentrating on. And I thought I was going to call a bird up from in front of me come, to come up to me. So I'm sitting there, you know, working my call, working my mouth call, you know, and, and uh, thinking I'm, you know, I might get somebody here. And all of a sudden I hear this crunch, crunch, crunch right behind me. I thought, oh my gracious, I can't turn, I can't get a shot, but it kept getting closer and closer and closer. I thought, this thing is right on top of me, like right here. And I turned around and it was a bobcat. Like, like that close. And it, of course, when it saw what I was, it, it took off. I got one more story about the ridge, okay? Then we'll get into We can just do stories this morning. That's what this is about. So, so uh, when I lived in, in Tennessee, I raised horses. I would, I'd, get, I'd call them puppies. I'd get them when they were puppies and raise them up. And that way, they wouldn't learn any bad habits from somebody else. But I, I would I train them. I knew how to break them. I figured out I got lessons to shoe them so I wouldn't have to spend that money. So in, in the county we were in, they specialized in spotted saddle horses. They mixed pinto ponies with Tennessee walking horses, and they got a really nice-looking horse that had a good, smooth gait. And so I had Cracker and I had Peewee. They were half-brothers. And so uh, my little girl, Bethany, she would have been about 8 or 10, so she'd have been about that tall. Uh, she's a force of nature. She would tackle a grizzly bear with a switch, and I would pity the grizzly bear. And that's, that's my little girl. So she's, she's, I don't know if she was that old. Because Jacob, our young son, our son, was still in diapers. So I climbed on Pee Wee, and Robbie set Jacob next to me, and, and Bethany is riding Cracker. Great big 15-2 horse, big, muscled up, full of himself, but he knew her, so he'd do whatever she said. So we ride all the way out there to the ridge together. Of course, I get off, open the gate, we go through. We get all the way to the back of what we call the hay field, and the hay's up to about your knees, you know. So everything's been smooth. Bethany's handled cracker just fine. Uh, Jacob's good on peewee. We're just riding along. So we started back toward the gate, and all of a sudden a fawn busted out. And when it did, cracker spooked, and he started running. And Cracker, we had, I had raced him a lot. So if another horse runs up beside him, it's like it's on. So I thought, I can't, I can't, I can't run up beside and try to catch him. And I'm watching my little blonde-haired girl. I think, going out of sight to her own demise, I thought, I'm going to lose my little girl. On this, she couldn't control that. I kept saying, pull back, Bethany. She said, I am, I am. But she couldn't control him because he was... So I trained all my horses to verbal commands, and the big one was woe. And I thought, okay, I've got one chance at this, one chance only. So in the biggest, strongest, most manly voice I could possibly come up with, I said, whoa, just biggest. And he locked them down. So I was able to walk, not run, not trot, but walk up very slowly and, and grab Cracker and get him calmed down and get her calmed down and we made it home safely. So now you know a little bit about me that you didn't know before, right? And you know a little bit about uh, my daughter that you didn't know before. That's, that's what stories do. Stories connect us. Um, do you want to argue with my story at all? Anybody want to push back and Say that's a bad story. I don't like you for telling that story. I disagree with you about that story. 
Weird. If I'd have stood here and made some kind of political speech or tried to talk about some sort of concept or tried to teach you some new philosophy or new theological perspective, we might have some pushback, right? I don't see it that way. You know, I don't, I don't, but when you tell a story, there's something that happens. There's, um, there's empathy. Because some of you have watched your child in jeopardy before. Or some of you have come up on something really, really strange in nature that you couldn't explain. Right? So there's empathy that goes there. And empathy builds unity. Or sometimes, not, not in those stories, but in sometimes when we tell our stories, you find yourself in my story and I find myself. Not find, but discover. You discover yourself in my story and I discover myself in yours. So what about Paul? Why did we do this this morning? So we read the first account. Do you know how many times that story's told in the New Testament? It's told there in chapter 9 where Pastor Laura read. It's found in chapter 22 of Acts where he's talking, I think, to the people in Jerusalem. And then it's told in, I think, 26. I may have these numbers a little wrong. I think he's talking to King Agrippa at that point. And then there's another place in the first chapter of Galatians, his letter to the Galatians, where he gives a mini version of his, the story of his conversion. What helps me about this? You, got, you don't have projectiles, do you? I don't want anybody to throw something at me. I have trouble with Paul sometimes. Just saying. I don't have problems with the Gospels. I don't have problems with the stories of the Old Testament. When it comes to Paul, sometimes I'm like, did you really say that? Because Paul basically tells half of the population to sit down and shut up. All you women here, you shouldn't be preaching. I mean, that's Paul. And yet he turns around and he writes 1 Corinthians 13, which just takes you to another place. Or he writes Romans chapter 8. You know, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not this, not this, not this. And you're just, you're sucked right into the vortex of that. So good, so life-changing. And yet he, he goes back to this other. But his story helps me understand this. Because literally in the story that Pastor Laura read, it says he was on a mission to go arrest slash possibly kill Christians. He stood by while Stephen was stoned to death. Held the cloak, the clothes of the people throwing the stones. And so he started out, he's this trained Pharisee. He's this trained garter of the truth. Soldier of the Old Testament, you know, word. And so we're, I'm doing good for God. And I'm, I'm, my heart is in this and I don't, just teach it well I practice it and I insist on our people being good Jews and and they're getting they're wandering away into this Christianity we can't have this it's polluting our religion so he starts out that way he's kind of the captain of, of his own ship well-trained uh, vigorous uh, proactive um, in command you know people do what he says certified, whatever other word you want to use. He starts out that way. And so there he is in the story called Saul. 
marching down the road to Damascus, and all of a sudden, God thumps him, a good one. And he falls down. You see, I'd, I'm embellishing the story, but I'd like to think he slobbered just a little bit. I'd like to think he shook just a little bit. But he's just, he's just like dumbfounded. He, he, he knows something hit him hard. And so he has this conversation with God, and it's like, oh, my gracious. Oh, my gracious. Jesus is real. He's not, you know, some false prophet. He's real. And he has this life-changing conversation. He has this life-changing encounter. And then to beat all, people who feared him, Ananias, welcomes, welcomes him into his home, lays hands on him. They baptize him. He's filled with the Spirit. He's completely changed. He fellowships with the people that he actually came to arrest. And he had, So you see this guy who has all this residue, this huge backstory of being trained to be a legalist and follow the rules and enforce the rules or else, you know. And then you have this guy who's been radically changed by grace. It's reflected in his writing where he has these little passages. You should, you must, you ought to, blah, 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 you know, keep the pool rules. And then you've got these beautiful passages about grace. You can understand Paul now because you know his story. And now I actually, um, I'm actually fascinated with Paul now. I'm not asking for a show of hands, but let's be honest. How many of us struggle with, I get what grace has done in me, but that guy over there needs to be exposed for what he's doing. Or that person over there needs their comeuppance or whatever. Or... You know, I've been changed by grace, but I really don't like so-and-so. You look in the mirror and you see Paul. I do. I do. I was brought up very legalistic. I was very, very much a rule keeper. And then God's grace touched me and changed me. And so I've got this same mix in me. I mean, by the looks of your body language, you understand what I'm saying. So we find ourselves in Paul, in Paul's story. And what's helpful about that is we see him progress. If you read the book of Philippians, that's the last one he wrote probably before he died. Read the tone of that as compared to some of the other ones. You, we see grace working on him. We see grace transforming him as he goes along. It gives me hope that I'm not going to be the mean old guy that I've always, well, I'm not a mean old guy, but I used to be, used to be. That God is working on all of us. So I want, I want to talk about, and, and I want to hurry up because I don't want to take too much time. Well, I want to talk about three kinds of stories that I think we need to, and there are lots of different kinds of stories, but I want to talk about three. One is, I think, personally, it's some of the most holy, sacred moments happen when we tell funny stories. Funny stories are not just a diversion. Funny stories, humorous stories, are not like, I want to say, like drinking a couple beers or something. You know what I'm saying? They're not just to send you, well, let's go to our happy place for a minute. That's not what funny stories are about. Funny stories to me are looking at, at the darkness, the deception, the hatred of the world, and, and defiantly saying, I'm not going to get sucked into that. I'm not going to become that. I'm finding something to laugh at. I don't think that God sits wherever he sits and wrings his hands over the shape the world is in. 
I think God finds humor all over the place. And I think he chuckles and pokes the angels. Are you seeing that? These people here are being defiant against the darkness. And, and there are lots of ways to defy the darkness. But one of the ways to defy the darkness is humor. Is sharing humorous stories. And this sounds like a trite, trivial little thing. But it's not. It's huge. Think about in the funeral home. Where you've done your initial, you've viewed the, the deceased and you've wept. And then everybody just kind of mills around. There is some of the loudest laughter, some of the craziest, funniest stories told in a funeral home of anywhere you'll ever see. As a pastor, I've spent a lot of time in a funeral home. And there have been some crazy stories told. Because it's saying this is a sad moment. We embrace the grief. We embrace the hurt of it. But we also defy that, this is, that, that death and grief gets the last word. It doesn't get the last word. And you know, God's up there and he's saying, I just got somebody, not that he took them from us, but he's saying, I'm pretty tickled with this. I got somebody here. You know, I can hug them, hold them. So humorous stories. The other one is what we talked about with Paul. There's the life-changing stories. Everybody has a Damascus Road story to tell. I call mine the little red truck story. And my little red truck's still out there. I've driven that thing since 2002. 20 years I've driven that thing. And I have had some encounters with God. I've had some encounters with Pastor Wayne. I've had some encounters with my deceased father. I've had some uh, divine moments in that little truck. Equivalent to the Damascus Road type thing. So if you've got some of those moments in your life this sounds too strong but I'm going to say it anyway woe unto you if you don't share them tell your crossroads stories tell your Damascus road stories to other people you don't have to stand on the corner and you know make a scene and you may not want to do it in front of a group but find a couple people and, and share your Damascus road your little red truck stories share your stories with people because yeah it 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 brings hope it brings healing for them to hear those and they find themselves in your story here's the third one and this is where i live all the time this is what i do at broadway this is the way i will live the rest of my ministry however long it is you need to tell your trauma stories I don't care how good your parents were. I don't care how good you were as parents. I don't care how good your grandparents were. Nobody escapes childhood trauma free. Nobody. Nobody. This is one I would follow my sword for. There are not many things anymore that I'd follow my sword for. But I would for this. Because I've been in it too long. I've been in recovery Minute They started out as Celebrate Recovery, and now it's Pathway, but they started in 2005 at Broadway, and I've been in it about two months after they started it is when I got involved in it. I've heard too many stories. I'm looking around the room, and I'm seeing too many people I've been in group with or I know who have been in groups. I've heard too many stories. None of us escape childhood trauma-free. I'm sorry, but we don't. And if you're a parent of young children, your children are not going to escape 
their childhood trauma-free. None of us do this perfectly. As hard as we try, we cannot do it perfectly. So we're all wounded. I've got a lot of people who look me in the face and say, I'm not wounded. And I'll just say the Dr. Phil thing. I'll say, how's that working for you? Because it ain't. It, the longer I'm in this, the more I can see the, the jelly squeaking out of the sandwich. You know, you know that metaphor? Trauma is like an overpacked peanut, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And you bite one side and it squirts out the other. And you turn it around, seal that off, it squirts out another. It comes out. It, your trauma comes out. And if you've been in recovery for any length of time, those of us who have been in recovery say, you're trying to hide it, but it ain't working. you got jelly all over the place. So in, in Pathway, um, we have, we just routinely tell our stories all the time. That's basically what Pathway is, is we tell our stories. We do it in small groups. We do it on Sunday night in the big group. Um, nobody's ever forced to tell their story, ever, 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 ever. We won't even stick a finger in your back and try to coax you to tell your story. It's by invitation or, or by volunteer only and sometimes by invitation when we think somebody might be ready, whatever. But it's there's so much power in the telling of your story. It, and, and this metaphor may not work. You may find it slimy and bleh, I don't like it. But it's, it's like we know, we're like a little kid and we know we have snakes under the bed. You have to get up in the middle of the night to go pee. It's just like, oh, scared to death. You jump as far off the bed as you can because you know they're there. They're going to get me. I know. And some of them are poisonous. So we leap out of bed. This is very metaphorical. Is that a word, metaphorical? So anyway, we, you know, we know that there's an issue there. And so the first thing that we encourage people to do is start thinking about your snakes. That's your trauma. That's your childhood trauma. Start thinking about them. Just admit you've got them because you've got to admit them first. Yeah, there's something wrong. I don't know what it is, but let's just call them snakes from my childhood. I'm thinking about it, but it's still all messed up. You're not seeing them. You're just acknowledging them. And then the second step we say is, Write down parts of your story. Whether you like to journal or not, just use shorthand, whatever. Use code language, your own. Just write down an outline of some of these stories. You don't have to write your whole story, but just write the snaky parts, you know, the traumatic parts. Write down some of those. Just one word about it, because that's all you'll need to identify that snake. Um, write it down. That's step two. Now you've identified your snakes. They're not under the bed anymore. They're out in the floor where you can see them. But they're still coiled. They're still venomous. And they're still not something to trifle with. You're, you're still, they're still kind of running the show. But the third thing is what makes all the difference. You find somebody you trust. And you tell your story to them. My person was Pastor Wayne. His person was me. We did it at Kiriakis on the disc golf course. I was the first. I went first, and then he went second. We went a week apart, and both of us as close as brothers, and, and I mean soul kin. Both of us scared to death. As close as we were, that was a scary, scary hour of telling the, the parts of our story that we thought we should tell. But what that did. It did not eliminate the snakes. The snakes are with you for good, but it defanged them. 
they no longer have any poison in them. They no longer are a threat. They don't run my life anymore. They're part of my story, but they don't control me anymore. You don't have to go to Pathway to do this. You, you, you don't. You don't even have to be part of a small group. You can just simply sit down and start writing some of your story and then find it. Don't use a spouse. Don't use a family member because they're usually part of your story. That's not going to work. Find a friend. It should be probably the same gender. Uh, find a friend you trust and, and sit down and take an hour over a Coke or a cup of coffee and just share your story. And it's so liberating, so freeing. I got to tell you a funny story. I don't want to end on a heavy. All this. this gets heavy, heavy, heavy. So let me tell you another funny story. So Robbie, uh, Robbie had uh, kidney stone surgery Friday. That's why she's not here today. She's doing very well. No pain, no complications, no nothing. She's just doing great. She's just tired, so she stayed home. Um, she had a twin brother, Bobby. And some of y'all know he just passed not too long ago. He was a man's man. Uh, when I showed up there at that church where Robbie and Bobby grew up, the, the word instantly on him was, the guy's tough as a pine knot. You ever heard that saying? Tough as a pine knot. Um, Brian's a woodworker. He knows what a pine knot will do. <laughs> it's not, it won't cooperate. <laughs> I got to know him pretty well, pretty quick. And so my saying was, Bobby could tear up an anvil. Let that sink in. That's just how tough he was. I spent hours splitting wood with him, riding horses with him. The guy was just tough. And so uh, one 4th of I think it was 4th of July, we all piled in the car and went to Granny and Papa's house. That's Bobby and Robbie's parents. They lived in a little white frame house up on a hill and, and had like 200-acre farm. Um, they had a, a filly named uh, Tiny, and she was mean. And she was not tiny. She, I don't know why he, uh, Papa named her Tiny, but he did. And nobody, nobody could fool with her. She was just mean. You couldn't ride her. So we pulled up by the house, and down in a plowed field, about 200 yards away, down in a plowed field, her older brother, Wayne, is holding Tiny, and Bobby's trying to get up on her. And she's got a saddle and everything on, and he's basically trying to break her and ride her for the first time. So we get out of the car, and I'm all zoned in. And the first thing I saw is he got on her. She shot him, and he, straight as a board, he shot up in the air, and his head stayed in one place, and his whole body, like a piece of plywood, fell over, and he fell flat on his back in front of Tiny. thought that didn't feel good. So I'm like, I want to go down here and, you know, get closer to the action. So I'm walking down through the field, and, and he just gets up, brushes himself off, and, and he, he hits Tiny a couple times, you know, like, behave. And Wayne's trying to hold her still, and he got back up on her. By the time, but between the house and getting down to the plowed field, he got bucked off at least three times. There's blood, there's sweat, there's mud, there's torn clothing, there's just, you know, I'm thinking, boy. So I walk up, and Bobby now sees that I'm coming down there. And he, he's got his foot in the stirrup and his hand on the horn. He's getting ready to do it again. He looked at me, and he said, I don't know how much more of this she can take. <laughs> that, was, that was Bobby. <laughs> 
And, I mean, he eventually broke her, and we went on trail rides, and, and uh, yeah, Tiny came his way. So I think I'm over time. I apologize, but I had to tell you that story at the end. Uh, let's talk to Jesus for a minute. Jesus, you're so good. Uh, you, um, you came and became part of our story, and now you invite us to be part of your story. And uh, uh, we don't even know how to say thanks for that. But we know that we're all in this together, so our stories mingle together. And we're just excited to explore where this is going to go. So we'll talk to you later.